and for some ANC members until, 19, uh, till 1994, is, a, is one that will be known to many people in this room. Yet there's no doubt that many people with deep knowledge of the ANC, including the vast majority of ANC members in South Africa then and now, have only a partial and inaccurate idea of how these events came about. Now let me begin by summarizing what I might call the conventional view. It's based on the speech from the dock made by Nelson Mandela at his trial in 1964, the famous I expect to die speech, which is more or less the same as the account in his autobiography, which as many of you will know was published in 1993. Now in those texts, Mandela recounts how in the middle of 1961, militants within the ANC and members of the South African Communist Party, both organizations being illegal, the ANC since 1960 and the Communist Party since 1950, were working in parallel to create an insurrectionary army. This resulted in the attacks of 16th of December 1961, which was the first public appearance of the guerrilla army known as Umkonto Wesizwe. Now this is a very familiar story, I'm sure to very many people here. Far less well known is the fact that the ANC as an institution never approved the creation of Umkonto Wesizwe, which was officially presented as an autonomous organization comprising members of both the ANC and the South African Communist Party. <coughs> One of the main reasons for this artifice was that the ANC president of the time, Albert Lutuli, did not believe that violence was the best way of opposing the apartheid state in the early 1960s. And as many of you will also know, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for 1960, which he in fact went to Oslo to receive at almost the same time that Mkonto Wasizwe was making its debut. Militants within the African National Congress, of whom Nelson Mandela was in those days the most prominent, wanted to find a way to use the movement's resources for their armed struggle, or for an armed struggle, but knew they would not be able to get a formal decision in their favour due to the opposition of Lutuli and some others. A, promin a prominent Communist Party member later recalled concerning the series of meetings in June 1961, referred to by Mandela in his autobiography, and I quote, Lutuli was simply brushed aside. He was told that Mkonto Wasizwe was separate from the ANC, that the ANC should stay committed to non-violence, but that he shouldn't expel individual ANC members who participated in, in Mkonto Wasizwe. This was tantamount to a coup within the organization, as a result of which Lutuli was soon sidelined. Now, the foundation of Mkonto Wasizwe came about only after the ANC's National Executive Committee, correctly anticipating its forthcoming banning, had in March 1960 instructed Oliver Tambo to leave the country and establish an external mission to generate support abroad. And that's really what my book is about. It's called External Mission, and it's really the history of the ANC mission in exile. The South African Communist Party took a similar measure at about the same time, sending a senior member, Dr. Yusuf Dadu, to London to perform a similar function. In other words, to represent the South African Communist Party abroad. In London, Dadu met the party's representative in Britain, Vela Pile, a South African who had joined the Communist Party of South Africa in his youth, had emigrated to Britain in 1949 and found a job at the London branch of the Bank of China, an important office since it was where the People's Republic of China did most of its foreign currency dealing. Pile had good contacts in Beijing and following Dadu's arrival in London, 
he arranged for Dadu and himself to visit the Chinese capital with a view to asking for help with an armed struggle. And here I'm going to uh, show you my, my picture. So here we have two pictures, in fact, in one slide. Um, in, in, in 1960, Vela Pile, who's the gentleman you see on the extreme left there with the glasses on, uh, he arranged for himself and Dadu to visit Beijing. And here you see Vela Pile, the London representative of the South African Communist Party, and Yusuf Dadu, who's got the chopsticks in his hand, and they're being received by uh, by Jude, who was the head of the People's Liberation Army. And as you can see on the date, this was on the 20th of October 1960. And then two weeks later, or thereabouts, they're received by Chairman Mao himself. Uh, these pictures come from the archives of the Chinese Communist Party. I've tried very hard to get uh, a Chinese official minutes of these meetings, but was unable to get them. But it's clear from what other people said at the time and from the context that Pile and Dadu asked for help with a military struggle from the Chinese government and that this was this was accorded to them and this is in October November 1960 so clearly this meeting on the 3rd of November 1960 with Chairman Mao is extremely important for the for that reason because it's it's the, it's the agreement of, of international support uh, on 3rd of March of November 1960, they met Chairman Mao himself, who promised support for a future armed struggle in South Africa. Two other colleagues from the South African Communist Party, Joe Matthews and Michael Harmel, were having similar discussions in Moscow at the same time, according to Matthews himself. It's clear that the four delegates, two in Beijing, two in Moscow, received the assurances they were seeking. They surely found a way of informing their Communist Party comrades back in South Africa of the success of their mission, for in December 1960, the South African Communist Party held a conference attended by some 25 senior members in the Johannesburg suburb of Emerentia. Those present passed a vote instructing the Central Committee to prepare for an armed struggle. This decision was officially labelled secret, meaning that it would not be communicated even to ordinary members of the party. At this stage, the South African Communist Party probably had about 500 members. The Emerentia Resolution of December 1960 was the true start of Umkonto with Seasway. It took place six months earlier than the date conventionally given and a year before Umkonto with Seasway was unveiled in public. Among those attending the December 1960 Emerentia Conference was Nelson Mandela. There is overwhelming evidence that he had joined the Communist Party, most probably earlier that year. Proof is provided by party documents as well as the testimony of numerous party members of the time. Joe Matthews, one of the delegates who travelled to Moscow that same year, claimed that Mandela was co-opted to the South, African, the South African Communist Party's Central Committee, and indeed this would help explain his presence at the party's Emerentia conference. For most of the previous decade, in other words before 1960, Mandela had believed that an armed struggle of some sort would one day become inevitable. He had also developed friendship and respect for some of his communist comrades of all races. In joining the Communist Party, Mandela seems to have reasoned that he could not establish an underground army as he was determined to do without international support 
and that the South African Communist Party, whose leaders he knew very well, was the key to this, thanks to, this, to the party's place in the international family of communist parties. It was thus that Mandela and his com comrades in the party set about enlisting the ANC in their projected armed struggle. By June 1961, wrote Joe Slovo, uh, already a prominent Communist Party member, and I'm quoting here, the central committee of our party and the Johannesburg Working Group of the ANC had reached a consensus on the need for a military wing and to prepare for its initial phase of armed action. The ANC's Johannesburg Working Group at that time included Moses Kotane, who was also General Secretary of the Communist Party, J.B. Marx, Mandela, Walter Sisulu and Duma Nokwe, all senior members of the Communist Party, as well as being senior members of the ANC. The manner in which the party, with support from members who also constituted the ANC's Johannesburg Working Group, pushed the ANC into armed struggle, according to Joe Matthews, quote, resulted in a very dangerous situation, where you had the official policy that was not for an armed struggle, and you then had an organization established called Mkonto Wasizwe, which embarked on an armed struggle. The ANC's association with an armed struggle, initiated by the Communist Party, transformed the nature of the ANC in a very short time. It soon dropped the legal fiction that it had no connection to Mkonto Wasizwe, and from late 1962, the ANC's representatives overseas were openly acknowledging the underground army as its armed wing, although in practice, Mkonto Wasizwe was largely controlled by the Communist Party's Central Committee and manned mostly by party members. In short, the armed struggle that pitted Mkonto Wasizwe and later the whole of the ANC against the South African state was inscribed in the politics of the Cold War from its inception. At that time, Soviet strategic thinking had arrived at the conviction that the Third World, a, a, a term first coined in 1952, was key to the Cold War. Marxist-Leninist theoreticians thought that the decolonization of European colonial empires would lead to the collapse of capitalism worldwide, probably within a short time. Now this account of the establishment of Encanto with Seasway is perhaps the most novel aspect of my book, External Mission, the ANC in Exile, and that is why I've spoken about it at such length. Other aspects of the ANC's evolution from 1960 to 1990 may be familiar to you at least in outline. For example, the story of the Rhodesian campaigns of 1967 to 1968, or the Morogoro Conference of 1969, when the South African Communist Party re-established the control over Mkonto with Seasway, now based outside South Africa, that it had temporarily lost after a catastrophic series of arrests in 1963 to 64. Perhaps even better known is the ANC's development of what it called a People's War strategy in the 1980s that was aimed at spurring a mass rising against the apartheid government. Although the outlines of these things are quite well known, I nevertheless believe that many people would be surprised to learn of the ferocity of the infighting within the ANC throughout this period and the implications of creating a security service trained largely by the East German State Security Service, the Stasi, whose archives I have consulted, and which launched a brutal Stalinist-style purge in ANC camps in Angola in 1981. I can honestly say that I've documented these events at greater length than any previous writer. But new historical interpretations are not only the consequence of finding new source material, they are above all the result of seeing things in retrospect. After 1964, 
the ANC and the South African Communist Party were both led from exile. Exile made both organizations, uprooted from their home soil, heavily dependent on outside help. The Soviet Union was always the ANC's leading provider of goods and services, as well as its most important diplomatic backer, although Sweden, in time, became its chief donor. Even in the capitalist West, the ANC acquired widespread public support almost across the political spectrum from Europeans opposed to racism and apartheid. Many solidarity and anti-apartheid movements in Western countries were heavily influenced or even controlled by National Communist Party members. Perhaps the most successful of the lot was the British anti-apartheid movement, whose rallying of public opinion surpassed even the support generated for the Spanish Republic in the 1930s. It was more or less a front organization of the Communist Party of Great Britain. Vela Pile, the Bank of China employee who met Chairman Mao, as we see in November 1960, was the first treasurer of the anti-apartheid movement. Thanks to the mobilization of citizens in many parts of the world, South Africa found itself at the center of a global drama, which meant slightly different things to different people. For many in what was then called the Third World, it was a simple story of liberation by an oppressed people. For many British people, it was the tale of a botched decolonization that now had the chance to redeem itself. For the many Americans who discovered anti-apartheid only late in the day, it seemed like a repeat of the USA's own civil rights struggle, with Nelson Mandela taking the place of Martin Luther King. Yet the outpouring of international backing for the ANC brought with it a problem. Having advertised itself as a fighting movement, the ANC had to be seen to be waging an armed struggle, since many of its supporters expected no less. On occasions when its official patrons or allies became disappointed with a lack of militancy, they could respond by cutting their funding, as the USSR did in the early 1970s. In reality, Umkonto with Sizwe, the armed wing of the ANC, was unable to carry out almost any military action inside South Africa between the opening phase of the struggle in 1961 and the late 1970s. The tension between the ANC's militarist aspiration and its failure to live up to it created what the Communist Party strategist Jack Simons called, I quote, a great charade. An armed struggle maintained primarily in order to keep up appearances. This was why the rank-and-file soldiers of Mkonto with Sizwe, sitting in boring and poorly supplied camps in Angola and Tanzania, frequently staged protests whose central demand was to be sent into battle. Once Mikhail Gorbachev had arrived in power in the USSR in 1985, the ANC found itself further embarrassed, stuck with a militant strategy that its main ally was now questioning. The ANC's armed struggle, as such, never seriously threatened the security of the South African state, as one of its leaders, Chris Harney, acknowledged when he described Nkonto Wasizwe, quote, as a military wing which can't be compared to the SADF, the South African Defence Force. He added, but the fact is, it is a military wing which attracted into the struggle thousands of people. This is true enough, but no one told the rank and file of Nkonto Wasizwe cadres in their foreign camps or indeed ANC militants out inside South Africa, that the main purpose of the armed struggle was not to win the war, but to stay in the game. Many Mkonto with Sizwe cadres and ANC activists remained fixated with a stirring image of a military victory that was utterly impossible. During the 1980s, the ANC encouraged people to leave South Africa 
with a view to joining Mkonto Wasizwe abroad with the slogan, Swell the Ranks of MK. Yet the ANC had no military need of new recruits outside the country. On the contrary, one of its biggest problems was what to do with the military cadres it already had. Thousands of them needed to be housed and fed and their morale had to be kept up. Difficulties in doing this led to several uprisings over three decades, most of which were really pro-democracy protests, and one, there was one genuine mutiny in 1984. The mismatch between the ANC's military posture and the needs generated by changing times echoed that in the USSR itself, committed as it was to maintaining a massive industrial army that was increasingly unusable and poorly adapted to the emergence of war among the people as a paradigm of the late 20th century. What the existence of Mkonto was Sizwe actually achieved then was to provide the ANC with the profile of a militant revolutionary organization. The maintenance of a revolutionary army gave the ANC prestige among radical opponents of the government inside South Africa, who were in fact starved of information about the ANC and about the international situation generally, not least as a result of South Africa's diplomatic isolation. The ANC derived political advantage from its armed struggle almost in spite of itself. Now many internal activists, knowing little of the ANC due to censorship, particularly from the late 1970s, perceived that the ANC was increasingly regarded worldwide as apartheid's enemy number one, thanks to the success of ANC diplomacy. When a series of local protests swept South Africa in 1984, they were subsumed by the United Democratic Front, which had been set up a year earlier by people who sympathized with the ANC or were even secret members of the ANC, but who in fact had little connection to the external mission under Oliver Tambo. The dissidents inside the country were stirred by the ANC's militant rhetoric. Many idolized the figure of the guerrilla and the cult of the AK-47. They supposed that the ANC in exile had the right strategy and an efficient apparatus of command and control, which was actually not the case. Like God, the ANC's very absence made it all the more powerful. Seeing the reality behind this illusion took time. Gavin Evans, an activist living in South Africa who joined the ANC and the Communist Party and played a small role in the project known as Operation Vula, is a good example. During 10 years of fitful contact with the ANC outside the country, Evans only slowly came to detect the existence at ANC headquarters in Lusaka of what he called, I quote, an unpredictable blend of fervor and obfuscation, frequently revealing no more than bewildering incompetence. The ANC never reached its goal of implementing a people's war, crafted after a study visit to Vietnam in 1978, whereby the South African people would rise against the government's government under the guidance and with the support of an army infiltrated from neighboring countries. What the attempt to initiate a people's war did lead to, when combined with the government's counterinsurgency, was to precipitate a medium-sized civil war fought disproportionately in Zulu communities in and outside Natal. The end game of the great struggle, not only against the apartheid government, but also in several other Southern African countries with interconnected interests, came in the late 1980s. The Battle of Quito Quanavali in Angola, that lasted for several months in 1987-88, pitting the South African Defence Force and its local ally against Angolan government and Cuban troops, became the last conventional battle fought by the South African Defence Force. 
The SADF failed to attain its target and was withdrawn in light of the changing international climate and fears that if the war went into a new phase, it would be one that the South African government would find ever more costly, both militarily and politically. About 30 South African soldiers lost their lives at Quito Quanavale. However, humiliated by its failure to secure a place at the peace negotiations that began even as the battle was ending, and which were to conclude with an agreement that the ANC must leave Angola, the ANC hailed the battle, I quote, as, sorry, as, I quote, the crushing defeat suffered by the apartheid war machine at Quito Quanavale. It implied that the set of agreements finalized in New York in 1988 represented the demise of the South African Defense Force. For good measure, the ANC claimed that Mkonto Wasiswe had, quote, raised our armed offensive to higher levels of intensity. The ANC, throughout its years in exile, tended to lose contact with, development in, with developments in South African society, as expatriates very often do. This, together with its dedication to armed struggle and its adoption of key ideas and practices from the USSR, caused it ever more to live on myths. This was a creation of the period of exile, which has, unhappily, continued to the present day. Now let me say that by calling a certain version of history a myth, I do not mean that it is a fabrication. A myth, in its simplest definition, is a story with a meaning attached to it, other than it seems to have at first, the great Victorian critic John Ruskin tells us. Political myths are stories about the past that are taken out of their actual historical context and presented as timeless truths. Any coherent society has certain myths, stories with deep meaning that people tell each other about the past and that help them to find their way forward. The job of historians is not necessarily to destroy national myths, since nations need them. But myths need to be reinterpreted in the light of new facts and new thoughts, and updated or quietly dropped where necessary. This is a serious business because political myths are linked to an infrastructure of action and policy. The longer politicians try to maintain myths that run counter to the currents actually at work in society, the greater is the certainty that some sort of correction will occur. Officially invented history always prepares its own destruction, wrote Frederick van Sale Slabert, one of the most acute observers of South African politics of recent times. The burden of the great lie becomes too heavy to bear. Van Sale Slabert also pointed out that the National Party in its heyday had had a similar tendency to mythologize, and he concluded by noting that one thing the old and the new South Africa have in common is a passion for inventing history. History is not seen as a dispassionate inquiry into what happened, but rather as a part of political mobilization promoting some form of collective self-interest. The essence of the ANC's version of its own immediate past, propagated by means of official documents, speeches, monuments and commemorations, is that the ANC initiated an armed struggle that after much sacrifice was the main factor forcing the apartheid government to negotiate in circumstances that handed effective victory to the representatives of the majority of the population. I've tried to indicate during the last few minutes how the myths most dearly held by the ANC today differ from history, and this offers a hint as to why these myths have ceased to be useful to South Africa. Apart from death and taxes, nothing in history is inevitable. According to Alistair Sparks, the chronicler of South Africa's transition and a leading commentator for many decades, by 2011, 
it had become apparent that the ANC, I quote from Alistair Sparks, steeped in a socialist ideology throughout the struggle years, had seen its entire intellectual universe collapse just as it came to power. It was pitched into a globalized free enterprise environment it didn't understand and was reluctant to accept. Seeing itself as a revolutionary movement representing a whole society, the ANC has come to consider political opponents not as representatives of constituencies with their own particular views and interests, but as counter-revolutionaries. Those who expose misgovernment, governance and corruption are reactionaries. Meanwhile, particularly since the tumultuous events at the ANC conference in Polokwane in 2007, when an internal revolt resulted in Jacob Zuma replacing Thabo Mbeki as president of the ANC, thuggery and corruption have increased alarmingly. When I last visited South Africa in November last year, one of the country's new business elite, a member of the SACP and the ANC in their exile years, described to me the ANC as having become, I quote, a criminal enterprise. According to the South African newspaper City Press, which has a mostly black readership, of the ANC's newly elected National Executive Committee, meaning the NEC that was elected last December, and the party's top six officials, 28% either have criminal records, have been disciplined or been moved from their jobs, or otherwise gravely tainted with financial or similar scandal. I believe we must look at South Africa's late 20th century history from a new perspective that has more power to explain than the familiar tale of liberation. Characteristic of the world over the last 60 years has been the existence in many regions of confrontations that are timeless, in which the organized use of force is unable to impose a strategic decision as it could in the old days of industrial war. So it has been in Palestine from the 1940s, Korea from the 1950s, in Iraq from 1990, in Cyprus, in Kosovo and many other places. In the case of South Africa, many people hoped and believed that the 1994 settlement might bring an end to a long confrontation generally interpreted as pitting a racist state against an organization representing the mass of the population. The continuation of political violence in KwaZulu-Natal even up till today and more or less violent expressions of popular discontent since 2000 may cause us to wonder whether the confrontation did not simply mutate in 1994 rather than come to an end. South Africa's confrontation increasingly appears to be re-emerging as one based on social class, as a rapacious new bourgeoisie growing wealthy on plundering the state rather than on capitalist production distances itself from the general population. Here is the heart of a worrying problem. All historic political settlements produce myths that allow those very same settlements to endure. For some people, the settlement reached between the ANC and the National Party in the early 1990s <coughs> was a historic compromise allowing former enemies to live <coughs> together in harmony. This is the myth of the negotiated revolution and the rainbow nation. For some other people, however, the negotiated settlement of the late 20th century was simply a milestone on a continuing revolutionary journey, not a sacred covenant. Their understanding of the foundational myth of the new South Africa is quite different. For them, history came to a stop in 1994 and the clock was reset to zero. Whether 1994 represented a revolution in South Africa or only a change of positions in an ongoing struggle remains to be seen. In any event, it cannot be understood without rethinking the story of the ANC's external mission. And I thank you very much for your attention.
Thanks very much, Stephen, for a very stimulating and, and provocative talk. Um, let me kick off with a question. Um, and you say that, like God, the ANC's absence made it all the more powerful. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly the way it framed the terms of its absence was, was extremely effective. I mean, it's now been visible to South Africans for 22 years. Um, and, and since then has been uh, voted back into power in free and fair elections by roughly two-thirds of the voters. So clearly it's, its transition from the visible, so from invisible to the visible has been remarkably successful over the period of a generation. Um, I mean, what accounts for that? Is there, is it a residue of a myth which is dying? Uh, was it a successful conversion? Is, is, there, is there anything in your history which, which, which speaks to what's really an overwhelming electoral success over, over 20 years? Well, clearly when the ANC came to power in 1994, uh, you know, it had the support of the majority of the South African population. Um, my, I suppose, the implication of what I've just said is that it gained that support overwhelming during the 1980s. I mean, I think probably it's probably fair to say by the late 1970s, the ANC was not well known. Um, of course, South, African, South Africans couldn't vote for the ANC in those days, but I think if, if there had been uh, a possibility of voting, they may well have not voted for the ANC. I mean, they may well have voted, many black South Africans in those days might have voted for some sort of black consciousness formation or other, PAC, various other things. Um, but clearly the events of the 1980s, the ANC navigated extremely successfully in the ex in, to the extent that they became regarded by many South Africans as the alternative to the apartheid government, and maybe even more, well, arguably even more important, they became regarded by many international players as the alternative to the South African government. So they had, in that sense, they had a great deal going for them. Hence, I don't find it at all difficult to see why most people voted for them in 1994. And as I've said, actually, most people didn't know the ANC very well. So whatever failings it may have had, they, they weren't apparent to most people. Um, they were very fortunate, I think, in having, as, as I think, you know, is generally admitted, they were, they were very fortunate in having leadership of Nelson Mandela, who's sort of, as it were, the right man at the right time. Um, what's happened subsequently, I don't regard in any way as inevitable. Of course, like everything else, you can trace bits of it back into history, but it's not inevitable. Uh, the replacement of Thabo Mbeki by Jacob Zuma, well, in the end, it wasn't quite such a close-run thing, but for a lot of people didn't think that was going to happen until it happened. Um, you know, there, there was. It, it, it didn't have to be various decisions taken by Mbeki, who clearly didn't have a great deal, you know, he didn't have the common touch, uh, made a difference. Um, various strategic decisions, looking back, may have made a difference, but uh, I don't find it difficult to see why people have voted overwhelming for the ANC up to now. Uh, I think under present circumstances there has to be a big question mark about that. My own impression for what it's worth is that many historic ANC members and voters, particularly of course of the older generation, are very, very disillusioned, but that's kind of anecdotal because it's just based on, you know, people that I know. But I think if there were a well, there are opinion polls of these things, but and of course regular elections as well, but I think everything leads us to believe that the ANC will probably be losing quite a lot of electoral support over the next few months and years. 